Chapter One, Part Three of The Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Meanwhile, the prima donna, rising to her feet, delivered herself of a lengthy recitative, her chin upon her breast, her eyes looking out from under her brows, an arm stretched out over the footlights. The baritone entered, striding to the left of the footlights, apostrophizing the prima donna in a rage. She clasped her hands imploringly, supplicating him to leave her, exclaiming from time to time, Va via, va via, del cecchio per peita. Then, all at once, while the orchestra blared, they fell into each other's arms. Why do they do that? murmured Aunt West, perplexed. I thought the gentleman with the beard didn't like her at all. Why, that's the Duke, don't you see, Aunt Wes? said Laura, trying to explain. And he forgives her. I, I don't know exactly. Uh, look at your libretto. A conspiracy of the bears, seventy cents, and naturally he busted. The mezzo-soprano, the confidant of the prima donna, entered, uh, and a trio developed that had but a mediocre success. At the end, the baritone abruptly drew his sword, and the prima donna fell to her knees, chanting, Io tremo, ahime. Now he's mad again, whispered Aunt Iwes, consulting her libretto, all at sea once more. I can't understand. She says, the opera book says she says, I tremble. I don't see why. Look out, said Paige. Here comes the tenor. Now they're going to have it out. The tenor, hatless, debouched suddenly upon the scene, and furious, addressed himself to the baritone, leaning forward, his hands upon his chest. Though the others sang in Italian, the tenor, a Parisian, used the French book continually, and now vilified the baritone, crying out, O traitre infame, o lache coupable. I don't see why he don't marry the young lady and be done with it, commented Aunt Wes. The act drew to its close. The prima donna went through her great scene, wherein her voice trembled to a C in alt, holding the note so long that Aunt Wes became uneasy. As she finished, the house rocked with applause, and the soprano, who had gone out supported by her confidant, was recalled three times. A duel followed between the baritone and tenor, and the latter, mortally wounded, fell into the arms of his friends, uttering broken, vehement notes. The chorus, made up of the city watch and the townspeople, crowded in upon the back of the stage. The soprano and her confidant returned. The basso, a black-bearded, bull-necked man, sombre, mysterious, parted the chorus to right and left, and advanced to the footlights. The contralto, dressed as a boy, appeared. The soprano took stage, and abruptly the closing scene of the act developed. The violins raged and wailed in unison, all the bows moving together like parts of a well-regulated machine. The kettle drums, marking the cadences, rolled at exact intervals. The director beat time furiously, as though dragging up the notes and chords with the end of his baton, while the horns and cornets blared, the bass viols growled, and the flagellets and piccolos lost themselves in an amazing complication of liquid gurgles and modulated roulades. On the stage, everyone was singing. The soprano in the center vocalized in her highest register, 
bringing out the notes with the vigorous twists of her entire body, and tossing them off into the air with sharp flirts of her head. On the right, the basso, scowling, could be heard in the intervals of the music, repeating, Il perfido, l'ingrato. While to the left of the soprano, the baritone intoned at indistinguishable, sonorous phrases, striking his breast and pointing to the fallen tenor with his sword. At the extreme left of the stage, the contralto, in tights and plush doublet, turned to the audience, extending her hands or flinging back her arms. She raised her eyebrows with each high note, and sunk her chin into her ruff when her voice descended. At certain intervals her notes blended with those of the sopranos, while she sang, Adio, Felicita del Ciel. The tenor, raised upon one hand, his shoulders supported by his friends, sustained the theme which the soprano led with the words, Je m'aime, ah, je souffre, mon âme s'envole. The chorus formed a semicircle just behind him. The women on one side, the men on the other. They left much to be desired, apparently scraped hastily together from heaven knew what sources, after the manner of a management suddenly become economical. The women were fat, elderly, and painfully homely, the men lean, osseous, and distressed, in misfitting hose. But they had been conscientiously drilled, they made all their gestures together, moved in masses simultaneously, and without ceasing chanted over and over again, O terror, O blasphema! The finale commenced. Everybody on the stage took a step forward, beginning all over again upon a higher key. The soprano's voice thrilled to the very chandelier. The orchestra redoubled its efforts, the director beating time with hands, head, and body. Il perfido, l'ingrato, thundered the bass. Ineffable mistero, answered the baritone, striking his breast, and pointed with his sword while all at once the soprano's voice, thrilling out again, ran up an astonishing crescendo that evoked veritable gasps from all parts of the audience, then jumped once more to her famous C in alt, and held it long enough for the chorus to repeat, O oh, terror, O oh, blasphema, four times. Then the director's baton descended with the violence of a blow. There was a prolonged crash of harmony, a final enormous chord to which every voice and every instrument contributed. The singers struck tableau attitudes. The tenor fell back with a last wail, Je m'aimere, and the soprano fainted into the arms of her confidant. The curtain fell. The house roared with applause. The scene was recalled again and again. The tenor, scrambling to his feet, joined hands with the baritone, soprano, and other artists, and all bowed repeatedly. Then the curtain fell for the last time. The lights of the great chandelier clicked and blazed up, and from every quarter of the house came the cries of the programme sellers, Opera books, books of the opera, words and music of the opera. During this, the last entr'acte, Laura remained in the box with Mrs. Kressler, Corthell, and Jadwin. The others went out to look down upon the foyer from a certain balcony. In the box, the conversation turned upon stage management, and Carthrill, 
told how in l'africain at the opera in paris the entire superstructure of the stage wings drops and backs turned when vasco da gama put the ship about jadwin having criticized the effect because none of the actors turned with it was voted a philistine by mrs cressler and corthell but as he was about to answer mrs cressler turned to the artist passing him her opera glasses and asking who are those people down there in the third row of the parquet see on the middle aisle the woman is in red aren't those the gretrys this left jadwin and laura out of the conversation and the capitalist was quick to seize the chance of talking to her soon she was surprised to notice that he was trying hard to be agreeable and before they had exchanged a dozen sentences he had turned an awkward compliment she guessed by his manner that paying attention to young girls was for him a thing altogether unusual intuitively she divined that she on this the very first night of their acquaintance had suddenly interested him she had had neither opportunity nor inclination to observe him closely during the interview in the vestibule but now as she sat and listened to him talk she could not help being a little attracted he was a heavy-built man would have made two of corthell and his hands were large and broad the hands of a man of affairs who knew how to grip and above all how to hang on those broad strong hands and keen calm eyes would enfold and envelop a purpose with tremendous strength and they would persist and persist and persist unswerving unwavering untiring till the purpose was driven home and the two long lean fibrous arms of him what a reach they could attain and how wide and huge and even formidable would be their embrace of affairs one of those great manoeuvres of a fellow money captain had that very day been concluded the helmic failure and between the cords and bars of a famous opera men talked in excited whispers and one great leader lay at that very moment broken and spent fighting with his last breath for bare existence jadwin had seen it all uninvolved in the crash he had none the less been close to it watching it in touch with it foreseeing each successive collapse by which it reeled fatally to the final catastrophe the voices of the two men that had so annoyed her in the early part of the evening were suddenly raised again it was terrific there on the floor and the board this morning by the lord they fought each other when the bears began throwing the grain at them in carload lots and abruptly midway between two phases of that music drama of passion and romance there came to laura the swift and vivid impression of that other drama that simultaneously even at that very moment was working itself out close at hand equally picturesque equally romantic equally passionate but more than that real actual modern a thing in the very heart of the very life in which she moved and here he sat this jadwin quiet in evening dress listening good-naturedly to this beautiful music for which he did not care to this rant and fustian watching quietly all this posing and attitudinizing how small and petty it must all seem to him laura found time to be astonished what she had first met this man haughtily in all the panoply of her grand manner 
and had promised herself that she would humble him and pay him for that first mistrustful stare at her and now behold she was studying him and finding the study interesting out of harmony though she knew him to be with those fine emotions of hers of the early part of the evening she nevertheless found much in him to admire it was always just like that she told herself that she was forever doing the unexpected thing the inconsistent thing women were queer creatures mysterious even to themselves i am so pleased that you're enjoying it all said corthell's voice at her shoulder i knew you would there is nothing like music such as this to appeal to the emotions the heart and with your temperament straight away he made her feel her sex now she was just a woman again with all a woman's limitations and her relations with corthell could never be so she realized any other than sex relations with jadwin somehow it had been different she had felt his manhood more than her womanhood her sex side and between them it was more a give-and-take affair more equality more companionship corthell spoke only of her heart and to her heart but jadwin made her feel or rather she made herself feel when he talked to her that she had a head as well as a heart and the last act of the opera did not wholly absorb her attention the artists came and went the orchestra wailed and boomed the audience applauded and in the end the tenor fired by a sudden sense of duty and stern obligation tore himself from the arms of the soprano and calling out upon remorseless fate and upon heaven and declaiming about the vanity of glory and his heart that broke yet disdained tears allowed himself to be dragged off the scene by his friend the basso for the fifth time during the piece the soprano fainted into the arms of her long-suffering confidant the audience suddenly remembering hats and wraps bestirred itself and many parties were already upon their feet and filing out at the time the curtain fell the Cresslers and their friends were among the last to regain the vestibule but as they came out from the foyer where the first draughts of outside air began to make themselves felt there were exclamations it's raining but why it's raining right down it was true abruptly the weather had moderated and the fine dry snow that had been falling since early evening had changed to a lugubrious drizzle a wave of consternation invaded the vestibule for those who had not come in carriages or whose carriages had not arrived tempers were lost women cloaked to the ears their heads protected only by fichus or mantillas quarrelled with husbands or cousins or brothers over the question of umbrellas the vestibules were crowded to suffocation and the aigrettes nodded and swayed again in alternate gusts now of moist chill atmosphere from without and now of stale hot air that exhaled in long puffs from the inside doors of the theatre itself here and there in the press footmen their top hats in rubber cases their hands full of umbrellas searched anxiously for their masters outside upon the sidewalks and by the curbs an apparently inextricable confusion prevailed policemen with drawn clubs labored and objurgated anxious preoccupied young men their opera hats and gloves beaded with rain hurried to and fro searching for their carriages at the end of the awning the caller 
a gigantic fellow in gold-faced uniform, shouted the numbers in a roaring sing-song that dominated every other sound. Coachmen, their wet rubber coats reflecting the lamplight, called back and forth. Furious quarrels broke out between handsome drivers and the police officers. Steaming horses with jingling bits, their backs covered with dark green cloths, plunged and pranced, carriage doors banged, and the roll of wheels upon the pavement was as the reverberation of artillery caissons. "'Get your carriage, sir!' cried a ragged half-grown Arab at Kressler's elbow. "'Hurry up, then,' said Kressler. Then, raising his voice, for the clamour was increasing with every second, "'What's your number, Laura? You girls, first. Ninety-three. Get that boy. Ninety-three. Quick, now.' The carriage appeared. Hastily they said good-bye. Hastily Laura expressed to Mrs. Kressler her appreciation and enjoyment. Corthell saw them to their carriage, and getting in after them shut the door behind him. They departed. Laura sank back in the cool gloom of the carriage's interior, redolent of damp leather and upholstery. "'What an evening! What an evening!' she murmured. On the way home, both she and Page appealed to the artist, who knew the opera well, to hum or whistle for them the arias that had pleased them most. Each time they were enthusiastic. Yes, yes, that was the air. Wasn't it pretty? Wasn't it beautiful? But Aunt Wesk was still unsatisfied. I don't see yet, she complained, why the young man, the one with the pointed beard, didn't marry that lady and be done with it. Just as soon as they'd seemed to have it all settled, he'd begin to take on again, and strike his breast and go away. I declare, I think it was all kind of foolish. Why, the Duke, don't you see? The one who sang bass? Page labored to explain. Oh, I, I didn't like him at all, said Aunt Wess. He stamped around so. But the audience itself had interested her, and the decollete gowns had been particularly impressing. I never saw such dressing in all my life, she declared. And that woman in the box next to ours. <laughs> Did you notice that? She raised her eyebrows and set her lips together. Well, I don't want to say anything. The carriage rolled on through the darkened downtown streets toward the north side where the Dearborns lived. They could hear the horses plashing through the layer of slush, mud, half-melted snow, and rain that encumbered the pavement. In the gloom, the girls' wraps glowed pallid and diaphanous. The rain left long, slanting parallels on the carriage windows. They passed on down Wabash Avenue and crossed over to State Street and Clark Street, dark and deserted. Laura, after a while, lost in thought, spoke but little. It had been a great evening, because of other things than mere music. Corthell had again asked her to marry him, and she, carried away by the excitement of the moment, had answered him encouragingly. On the heels of this, she had had that little talk with the capitalist Jadwin, and somehow since then she had been steadied, calmed. The cold air and the rain in her face had cooled her flaming cheeks and hot temples. She asked herself now if she did really, honestly, love the artist. No, she did not. Really and honestly, she did not. And now, as the carriage rolled on through the deserted streets of the business districts, she knew very well that she did not want to marry him. She had done him an injustice. 
but in the matter of writing herself with him correcting his false impression she was willing to procrastinate she wanted him to love her to pay her all those innumerable little attentions which he managed with such faultless delicacy to say no mr corthell i do not love you i will never be your wife would uh, this time be final he would go away and she had no intention of allowing him to do that but abruptly her reflections were interrupted while she thought it all over she had been looking out of the carriage window through a little space where she had rubbed the steam from the pane now all at once the strange appearance of the neighborhood as the carriage turned north from out jackson street into la salle forced itself upon her attention she uttered an exclamation the office buildings on both sides of the street were lighted from basement to roof through the window she could get glimpses of clerks and bookkeepers in shirt sleeves bending over desks every office was open and every one of them full of a feverish activity the sidewalks were almost as crowded as though at noontime messenger boys ran to and fro and groups of men stood on the corners in earnest conversation the whole neighborhood was alive and this though it was close upon one o'clock in the morning what is it all she murmured corthell could not explain but all at once page cried oh i know see this is jackson and la salle streets landry was telling me the commission district he called it and these are the broker's offices working overtime that helmet deal you know laura looked suddenly stupefied here it was then that other drama that other tragedy working on there furiously fiercely through the night while she and all those others had sat there in the atmosphere of flowers and perfume listening to music suddenly it loomed portentous in the eye of her mind terrible tremendous ah this drama of the provision pits or the rush of millions of bushels of grain and the clatter of millions of dollars and the tramping and the wild shouting of thousands of men filled all the air with the noise of battle yes here was drama in deadly earnest drama and tragedy and death and the jar of mortal fighting and the echoes of it invaded the very sanctuary of art and cut athwart the music of italy and the cadence of polite conversation and the shock of it endured when all the world should have slept and galvanized into vivid life all those sombre piles of office buildings it was dreadful this labor through the night it had all the significance of field hospitals after the battle hospitals and the tents of commanding generals the wounds of the day were being bound up the dead were being counted while shut in their headquarters the captains and the commanders drew the plans for the grapple of armies that was to recommence with daylight yes yes that's just what it is continued page see there's the rookery and there's the constable building where mr helmick had his offices landry showed me it all one day and look back she raised the flap that covered the little window at the back of the carriage see down there at the end of the street there's the board of trade building where the grain speculating is done where the wheat pits and corn pits are laura turned and looked back on either side of the vista in converging lines stretched the blazing office buildings but over the end of the street the lead-colored sky was rifted a little a long faint bar of light stretched across the prospect and silhouetted against this rose a sombre mass unbroken by any lights rearing a black and formidable facade against the blur of light behind it 
and this was her last impression of the evening the lighted office buildings the murk of rain the haze of light in the heavens and raised against it the pile of the board of trade building black grave monolithic crouching on its foundations like a monstrous sphinx with blind eyes silent grave crouching there without a sound without sign of life under the night and the drifting veil of rain end of chapter one